Dun, dun, da, da, dun, dun, da, 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 da. Got that stuck in my head now. Thanks, Gary. Sometimes Leah writes us a theme song for our series. Maybe that could be a challenge for you. Can you write something to that tune? Maybe? All right. We're starting a brand new series today. We're looking at the book of Acts, and it's all about this mission that we have to carry out. Some of you have already been digging into that through the readings that we started a couple of weeks ago, reading through Acts. We'll probably kind of catch up with those readings as we go, but we're going to start in Acts chapter 1 today, so we're going backwards on some of you, but Acts chapter 1, if you want to open up your Bible, we're in the New Testament, just getting through the Gospels to the book of Acts chapter 1. We've been on kind of this journey of dwelling in the Word for almost a year now, maybe a little over a year. If you remember, we started um, in Genesis saying we're going to start to dwell in the Word of God and see how this story gets unfolded throughout the Old Testament. And then last fall, we focused, we slowed down quite a bit and just stopped and looked at the Gospels. So we were dwelling with Jesus for quite a while in those. So now we're up to the book of Acts and looking at what that means. So... Acts 1, starting with verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my Father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates that the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This is God's word, and it's true, and we can rely on it. So one night this week, I wasn't feeling great, so I did something I haven't done for quite a while, don't do very often. I lay down on the couch and did some channel surfing. And one of the first things I landed on was the movie The Matrix. Do you remember that movie? The original one, Morpheus, you know? He's offering the red pill and the blue pill. If you take the blue pill, you get to go back to your normal life. If you take the red pill, he says something like, go down the rabbit hole and see how deep it goes. And course, Neo takes the red pill, and so that's the movie. It's really not that interesting of a movie, because the whole movie is based around one question. Morpheus thinks he has found the one, and then it just scene after scene after scene of raising this question, are you the one, are you the one, are you the one? Um, and the one is supposed to rescue everyone, supposed to rescue the whole world. And uh, Neo, in this movie, is supposedly the one. I want you to turn to the person sitting next to you and ask them the question, are you the one? Go ahead, ask them. Okay, my channel surfing next showed me something I hadn't really ever paid much attention to, and that was that people 
are insanely committed to a whole bunch of different things. I landed upon this channel where there was a bunch of people making a giant dog cake. And they were insanely committed to making this like couple hundred pounds of cake look exactly like a dog. Which intrigued me, so I started surfing around and doing a little more research, and I found out there's a whole bunch of people insanely committed to cakes. There's cake masters, cake bosses, cake wars, cake hunters, fabulous cakes, Vegas cakes, and charm city cakes, which happened to be the one making the dog. And then there's a whole other bunch of people who are insanely committed to cupcakes and decorating them. And then as I continued to surf, I found out that there was people insanely committed to playing poker and flipping houses and sewing and, of course, sports. And the current list of sports I came across were hockey, basketball, baseball, soccer, badminton, and ping pong. And people are insanely committed to both playing these games and watching them. Did you know that ESPN actually even has a show watching people play video games? They do. And flying drones. You can watch guys fly drones. People are insanely committed to motorcycles, collecting antiques, dancing, fishing. I could go on and on and on. I don't know. How many channels do you have? I got about 97. And each one of them seemed like someone's more insanely committed than the one before. It got me wondering if there's anybody who's insanely committed to channel surfing. So the clearest example of what insanely committed looks like showed up in the middle of a show called Ink Masters. Anybody like this show, Ink Masters? Have you seen that one? It's actually a spinoff of the original Ink Masters. I was watching Ink Masters Angels, and I noticed in the middle of the show that the insane commitment has to do with being all in, in your particular area of interest, so much so that you can convince other people to love the same thing you love. So Ink Masters was having a little competition between two tattoo artists, and they were describing their tattoo creations. And I've never really had a big desire to get a tattoo, but after I watched Ink Masters, I wanted to get a tattoo. (laughs) I loved what they were doing. I mean, they talked about the the color and the lines and the creation and everything there. And I'm like, wow, these people love... They are insanely committed to tattoos. And they love them so much that I wanted to love a tattoo. I did not get one yet, but thinking about it. Don't tell Mary. (laughs) Are you insanely committed to anything? Maybe not quite to the degree that will get you televised, but I want you to turn to your neighbor again and talk to them about if you have something that you feel like you're committed to, maybe borderline insanely committed to. And if someone, someone talk to Jack because he feels lonely up here, but <laughs> tell your neighbor what thing you think you might be insanely committed to. Go ahead. We took a little survey on our... Uh, app about people's free time, because if you have free time, that's what you fill your free time with, the things you're insanely committed to. And we found that there was a couple categories of people here. There are people who have very little or, or no free time. We figured they're the mothers who are here. And then there's a bunch of people who have a lot of free time. We figured those are the dads, the guys here. 
The thing you do in your free time is probably the thing you're insanely committed to. And if you do a lot of it, the more you do of it, the more likely you are insanely committed. Has anyone here ever mucked out a house from a flood? Have you ever done that? Was that an enjoyable thing? Did you like that? It was kind of disgusting. Okay, I did some of that. Okay, one night this week when I wasn't laying on my couch feeling miserable, I thought, I feel miserable anyway. I'm going to go out in my backyard because it was insanely nice. Remember that night? Okay. So I climbed out and I have, I have three ponds in my backyard that I've dug by hand. And every so often I have to clean them out. So I drained one of my ponds and I climbed down in there with a bucket and I started to muck it out. And uh, an hour later, I had mucked out six five-gallon pails of muck out of the bottom of this pond, one handful at a time. And I loved it. Am I insanely committed to my ponds or not? Okay? Here's, it even gets worse because I've been dreaming about doing this for weeks, just waiting for the right time so I could get out there and do it. I have a theory. Here's my theory. Everybody wants to fall in love with a mission. Everybody wants to be insanely committed to something. So I'm going to test that out with you. Do you know why we have our Bibles to read? Anybody? you know why we have these words? Because there was a bunch of people who were insanely committed to something. They were insanely committed to say, I want you to know about God's love. And so I'm going to write it down. And this was before, you know, laptops and Twitter and social media. And this was before. It was not easy. They were insanely committed to telling us about God's love. So they wrote out a story about God's love. And we have our New Testaments, the last third of it, because there were some people who were insanely committed to want us to know how God's love was revealed in Jesus. They want us to understand who Jesus was and to encounter him in a way that we would not be able to if we did not have these words. I think this becomes really clear to me when I read just the first few verses of the book of Acts. I start to hear about one person who was insanely committed to make sure that we got these accounts of what Jesus did and how that impacted the people in the world. Look at that part again, Acts 1, starting with verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, now this gives us a clue that the person who's writing Acts has written something else, and he's writing it to a particular person. Theophilus is a friend of God, would be his name. And we're actually not sure if it's exactly a particular person or a category or group of people, a group of God's friends, God's lovers. These are people who want to know more about God. We have another book in the Bible that starts almost the same way. Anybody know what book that is? The book of Luke. So we think the same person wrote both books. He says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. That's what Luke was about. I wrote about it until the day he was taken up into heaven after, going, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. And that's exactly where Luke ends. And how after his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over and over again over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. And from this point on, he starts talking about these people that Jesus talked to, the mission that they were going on. Now listen to how the book of Luke starts. Luke 1. 
Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know with certainty the things that have been taught to you. Can you hear Luke's insane commitment in this passage? He's insanely committed to say, I am going to write down the most careful, the most detailed, the most complete, the most orderly account of all the things that Jesus has done. I know other people have done this. Other people have been telling stories. I'm going to go interview them. I'm going to talk to the eyewitnesses. I'm going to gather all this data and information. And then I'm going to write down to you the best account I can so that you know about Jesus. He's insanely committed to this. And actually, most experts would read through Luke and Acts, and they would say, what you have here is some of the finest literature written in that time. This is well-written stuff. He did a really good job because he was insanely committed to telling us about that. Um, The night I was channel surfing, I also saw an interview with Colts quarterback Andrew Luck, some of you Colts fans. Um, He's rehabbing from a shoulder injury, so he didn't play last year. They're hoping he's going to play this year. So I understand that throwing is actually one of the most difficult things for the shoulder to do, and it's one of the most complicated actions you can do to throw. And to be able to throw at kind of the elite level of an NFL quarterback, that's a tough, that's a tough task. So after having this surgery, Andrew Luck says that he is not skipping a single step in the rehab process because he is insanely committed to becoming an elite quarterback again and he's insanely committed to the NFL. Now, he didn't say insanely committed, but if you listen to the interview, you go, that guy's insanely committed to this. He's going to do everything he has. In fact, he's, he's studying other quarterbacks, not just any quarterbacks. He's studying elite quarterbacks who have also come back from the same surgery so he can understand exactly what they did to get better. So you know what you would call Andrew Luck? He's a disciple. He's an apprentice. He's learning how to rehab a shoulder. He's a rehab apprentice. Now, I don't know if we use apprentice or disciple very much anymore, but they kind of mean the same thing. An apprentice is simply a person who's all in to follow a master, someone who will teach him. This is probably most common in the trades. So if I'm an apprentice welder, I have a master welder who walks me through this and teaches me everything I need to know about welding, but not just knowledge. He also gives me skill. So he walks me through the task of welding so that in the end, I become a great welder. I'm an apprentice of the master welder. If someone wants to become an electrician, they are an apprentice electrician listening to a master electrician. Let's see if you got this. If I want to become a brick mason, I'm an apprentice brick mason. I learn from a master brick mason. If I'm a plumber, I follow a master plumber. If I'm a Christian, I follow Christ, master Jesus. I learn from him. I become all in. The story of Luke, the gospel, is focused on Jesus, the master, If you want to know all about Jesus, read Luke. The book of Acts 
is focused on the apprentice, those who are following Jesus. So if you want to know what it's like to be an apprentice of Jesus, a disciple, then read the book of Acts. And you'll see people who are insanely committed to following the mission of Jesus. And they learn this mission by living with Jesus, by following him, by doing the things that he does. So if a plumber learns to plumb by watching a master plumber, a disciple learns to be a disciple by following master Jesus. Here's a disciple's primary job. Learn from the master. Whatever your field of study might be, wherever you're apprenticing, you want to learn from the master. The best way to learn, one of the best ways to learn is to ask questions. So one of the first things that comes up in Acts is a question. The first question actually comes out in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. Here's the question the disciples asked. First question. Will you at this time restore the kingdom? That's the disciple asking the master. You're going to restore the kingdom now? Now this tells me one thing. These disciples have been paying attention to Jesus. You know, they've been walking with him for three years. They've been listening to him. They've been observing him. They've been doing everything they did. They lived their life together with Jesus. And one of the things that Jesus did the whole time he was with them is he kept talking about the kingdom. He kept saying things like, the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is upon us. Watch for the kingdom of God. This was the stuff Jesus was saying. Now, Jesus is clearly coming toward the end of his time. And so the disciples, burning question, is now the time? Is the kingdom finally going to be here? Can we look for it? They've seen glimpses of this kingdom. They've seen, you know, the, the demons were cast out. The blind received sight. The lame could walk. The deaf could hear. The, the mute could sing. They saw these amazing things. The hungry were fed. Those who were lonely and sad and crying were cared for and comforted. This is signs of the kingdom coming. And they're like, this is great stuff. We would like to see this kingdom come fully. Like we would like to see every buddy healed. We would like to see everyone set free. We would like to see all that is wrong set right. Is now the time? That's the question they ask. Now, Jesus gives them kind of an interesting answer. He says to them in the next verse, the time's not quite right. The time has not yet come. There is a time, and Jesus is actually saying, I don't even really know the time. This is something only the Father knows. He has the authority to set the time. There is going to be a day when God's kingdom comes, breaking in completely, fully. Everything that's wrong will be set right. We want it to be now, but not now. Jesus says, you have to wait a little longer. Have you ever wondered if the kingdom of God would come fully or even more fully? I know that I have. I look around at the world and I see that, you know, they're still poor. The poor are still poor. They're still hurting. Hurting people are still hurting. There's still hunger. Hungry people are still hungry. Weeping are still weeping. The oppressed are still oppressed. Sick are still sick. Doggone it if there's not more war. Is God going to do something about this? Jesus says, in essence, yeah, 
Someday God's going to do something to make all that right. And until he does, until that day comes, you, the disciples, are going to have to do something about it in the same way that Jesus did something about it. You're going to have to bring in little pieces of the kingdom. You're going to have to do what Jesus did. That's what Jesus is saying to these disciples. The master's mission is now our mission. Now, when I think about wanting a mission to love, isn't that, wouldn't that be a great mission, to love? Would it be amazing to be insanely committed to carrying out the mission that Jesus had? Jesus described his mission this way. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to preach liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to preach the year of the Lord's favor. Would you like to be insanely committed to that mission? The more we know Jesus, the more we know what our mission is as his disciples, the more we discover it. Now, as I was starting my journey into the book of Acts and dwelling in some of these passages that we've been reading in the early chapters of Acts, it hit me why this is so important for our, uh, as apprentices, for us as disciples to take up the mission of Jesus. You know why it's so important? Because God is insanely committed to reshaping this world through us. That's God's commitment. His commitment for right now is that this whole world would be transformed by his disciples, by us. Jesus says God's kingdom will fully come one day, and only God knows that day and that hour, and until that day, it's the apprentices who are going to do the work. And this is how it's going to happen, according to Jesus. Verse 8, But you will receive power, all you disciples, you apprentice types. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. If the mission is going to be accomplished, it's going to be disciples who are empowered by the Spirit, who start at home in Jerusalem, and then branch out into Judea, and then to Samaria, and then until the whole world knows about God's love. Now, you know what I think about when I hear this plan that God wants to use us to reshape the world? You know what my my first reaction is? Oh my gosh, there's got to be a better plan than this, isn't there? You know what? Can't God do something different? If God wants to set everything right in the world, why doesn't God just come in and do it? God's got the power, right? He could come in with his mighty power and he could sweep across the world and he could fix everything that's broken. Everyone who's sick, everyone who's hurting, everyone who's sad, everyone who's lonely, God by his power could just set it all right in a moment. Couldn't he do that? Wouldn't that be a great plan? That'd be a good plan. I think, what if God wants to, like, overcome evil and defeat all of his enemies? Couldn't God just send, like, an angel army 
send the heavenly host to come sweeping down into the world and uh, cast out all the enemies, to overcome the demonic, to cast Satan down, to defeat every wicked thing, to set right everything that's right. Wouldn't that be a great plan? If God wants to bring the kingdom to earth as it is in heaven, couldn't he do it in the blink of an eye and just fix it all right now so that there's no more tears, there's no more disease, there's no more tragedy, there's no more war, so that his glory comes and fills the whole world? Wouldn't that be a good plan? Well, here's God's plan. He's going to fix the brokenness in the world with us. Us disciple types who go out and bring peace and bring comfort and bring healing and announce good news, who visit the sick and the imprisoned and the oppressed, who care for the widows and the orphans, who love our neighbor as ourself. And we start in Jerusalem with one person who's maybe close to our home, and we go out into Judea and Samaria and eventually to the whole world. We just start sharing God's love. Because if you look at the master, Jesus, that's how he did it, right? He touched one person after another person, one at a time. If you and me, in the power of the Holy Spirit, fix all that's broken, the world can be restored one person at a time. And that is God's plan A for now. And there's no plan B. So every once in a while I find someone who says something and they say it way better than me and I wish I were them and I want you to hear their sermon on this topic but you'd all be frustrated if I just showed you a 30-minute video. But I found a snippet of someone who I really enjoy. Her name is Daniel Strickland and she preached on this topic a lot. I didn't actually discover this until late Friday afternoon and uh, I think we got the video loaded in there, didn't we? The video clip? Okay, so here's the whole sermon in about two and a half minutes. I saved it to the end so that you wouldn't be distracted. So watch this video. The best description of justice I've ever heard is that justice is love in public and Jesus is love personified. If I was Jesus, I mean, one of the temptations that he faced in the desert was just to, like, make it all happen in one go, you know, to solve the world's problems right now. And Jesus said that's not the way it's supposed to go. The, the Lord doesn't plan it that way. The Lord actually has this other plan that involves humans being humans and seeing each other as humans and helping one another, and that that actually is how this kingdom is going to go. It's not going to be one big robotic it's going to be one by one by one. And so Jesus stops for the one. He teaches about the one. He like engages the one. He heals the one. And I don't know why exactly. I can't quite figure it out. 
But I do know, because like logistically speaking, it would be easier if we could just heal whole neighborhoods at a time, you know, like, but the kingdom works one at a time. I mean, that's just the, the process, the lost son, the lost coin, the lost sheep. I mean, this is the nature of God himself. So I think, you know, that's one of the most powerful things about the model of compassion is that it's one child. So rather than you know, just an issue that we're all going to fight together, which still poverty is still an issue and we still will fight it systemically, but it's, it's got a name and a face. There's a person here and the one matters to God and the one lost child matters to the Lord. And there's something really profound in a world that tries to kind of blur everybody into one thing to say, no, God cares about the one, you know, there's something really profound about it. So I think that's the kingdom model. That's how God works in the world and it's how he invites us in. And I think it's kind of to protect us maybe from being, um, you know, from being disengaged from it, like from succumbing to the idea that poverty is too complex for us, which, you know, in today's world, that's what everybody would have us believe, you know, that it's above our pay grade, that we can't quite understand the complexities of it. And so therefore there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, which again is its own poverty, isn't it? But to actually say, well, you know, while you're chatting about what to do about poverty, maybe I can send Emerson to school. And then while you're chatting about how to like systemically, you know, unleash uh, food for the whole world, maybe I can give Emerson a meal. And maybe by the time Emerson is educated and fed and grows up, maybe he'll be the one that changes the world. I don't know, but until such a time as we've got this figured out, we do have a kingdom principle which is stop for the one. So if we're going to be insanely committed to God's mission, I think it has to involve at least two things. First of all, we recognize that God is insanely committed to the one, which means that God is insanely committed to you. And because God's insanely committed to you, you can be insanely committed to your neighbor. And it seems to me that that's how it starts. So turn to your, whoever's sitting next to you, and someone turn to Jack, and tell them you could be the one. Go ahead, tell your neighbor that. Let's pray. Lord God, I give you thanks for this day and for these people. And I thank you that you call us into this place where we can be uh, fed and nourished on your word and that we can be stimulated and challenged by your Holy Spirit. And God, I pray that all this is done so that you, our Father, will receive glory and we will give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.